every contact leaves a trace. That's the, the premise that Dr. Edmund Lockard put behind what is now popularly known as the Lockard Exchange Principle. Dr. Lockard was uh, known as the Sherlock Holmes of France. He was a pioneer in the field of forensic science. And basically, the, the idea is, is a fairly simple one. He says every contact leaves a trace. So every time there's a crime that's committed, uh, the, the criminal will leave, for instance, uh, he'll leave footprints in the flower bed. And if you know where to look, you look in the flower bed, you find those footprints, and then you know where to look on the right person's shoes, you can put two and two together because that contact leaves a trace. Or the perpetrator will, will tear his shirt as he enters the broken window and he'll leave fibers of that shirt there on the windowsill, or maybe he'll leave some blood drops there uh, at the scene of the crime. And so the idea that every contact leaves a trace has been, been used now for 100 or 200 years to solve crimes. That's what makes it this founding principle of uh, forensic science. I heard a TED Talk recently where a speaker, a police officer in London, talks about Lockhart's principle and then he, he shifts to make a, a pretty interesting application. He says, not only is this, is this true in forensic science, that every contact leaves a trace, he says, more importantly, it's, it's true in our relationships. Because every human interaction leaves a trace. Every human contact, every smile or every frown leaves a trace, leaves a mark around, the, you know, upon those with whom we are doing life. Every kind word or every cross word, every contact, he says, leaves a trace. And I think about that, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. We, we talked all last month about what it means for us to be intentional about our influence. And if you'll recall, we said that according to sociologists, even, you know, even the quietest person who leads the quietest sort of life will influence somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people without even trying. So the question for us was, well, what would happen if we tried? <laughs> what would happen if we tried to exercise a little more godly influence? And in keeping with Lockhart's principle, we could say that if every contact leaves a trace, then we would do well to consider the impact of our relationships, the impact we are having upon others and the impact others are having upon us, because every contact leaves a trace. So last week we kicked this off, this, this new series, and we really begin it in earnest now today. This idea of having a cloud of witnesses. For the next several weeks we'll be talking about the nine, your cloud of witnesses. And essentially what we're saying is that we're trying to identify from God's word first, but then also in our own lives, nine key relationships. You could call it your, your cloud nine if you wanted to, okay? But these are nine relationships, nine essential relationships that we need in our lives if we are going to thrive. I believe it's true that every contact leaves a trace, but I also believe this is true, that some contacts leave more of a trace than others. That some people leave a much larger imprint in our lives, and their influence is felt for a long, long time. And over the course of the next several weeks, we'll look at God's Word, and we will try and identify at least these nine relationships. And the question will be, who is in your cloud of witnesses that would fill that role? But also this, to whom might you be one of these relationships? 
And today, as we get started, we will spend our time today talking about and thinking about Jonathan. The Old Testament character of Jonathan from 1 Samuel. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20, that's where we'll spend our time together this morning. But today, we are talking about the first entry in this cloud of witnesses. And today, we focus on Jonathan, who is, for David, a good friend. So the question as we read this passage from God's word, the question for you that I'd like for you just to to think about as we enter into this word is who would would fit the bill for me? Who is my Jonathan? And then also this question, to whom can I be a Jonathan? Here's what God's word has to say to us. 1 Samuel chapter 20. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because, and this is interesting, because he loved him as he loved himself. King Saul is Jonathan's father. And at this point in David's life, King Saul has declared open war on David. And of all the people who stood to gain much by this open war, Jonathan is probably at the the head of the line, right? Because he stands as the successor to the throne. He stands as the successor to King Saul's throne, at least according to worldly custom. He's the crown prince. And so if anyone should be as threatened by David as King Saul is, it would be Jonathan. So what you would think You would think that you would approach this story and we would find Jonathan and Saul working over here in the corner, you know, plotting and planning to take David down, twiddling their mustaches and coming up with their their evil plans. That's what you would expect to find as you read God's word, but that's not what we see here. Instead, we find this rich covenant friendship between Jonathan and David. In Jonathan... David has a friend who is selflessly committed to him. And in the text, as we just read, it says that he loves him. Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. Other translations read differently. Maybe yours say that that David and Jonathan, Jonathan loved David as he loves his own soul. Or even in one translation, it says as much as he loved his own life. That's a friend. Someone whose love for you matches the love they have for themselves, that's a true friend. And in the the message, the paraphrase version that Eugene Peterson has translated, he uses this phrase, which I find really helpful as he's describing this relationship between Jonathan and David. He uses the word, uh, the, the phrase covenant friendship. Covenant friendship. And I think that's a great description of this, this relationship between Jonathan and David Because as we see here, there is this covenant bond between the two of them. And in fact, this isn't the only place in the scriptures where you find this. If you turn over two chapters into 1 Samuel 18, you'll find there a covenant relationship, a bond that Jonathan and David have. They enter into a covenant with one another. 
And then you go over to chapter 23, just a couple of pages over the other direction, and you find again this episode where they're entering into this covenant, they're renewing the terms of this covenant friendship they have three different times in the span of five or six chapters. The language of covenant is used to describe this friendship. That means we're talking about something that's really, really special. In Jonathan, David has a covenant friend. The Irish have a phrase, anamkara is what they say. And that means the person who is a, a covenant friend, or for them, it's, it's usually translated a soul friend. Someone who is, whose soul is kind of bound to yours, your best friend, we might say. That's the kind of relationship we see here between Jonathan and David. It's a relationship that's spoken of elsewhere uh, in the scriptures. One place might be this in Proverbs 18.24. Now the first part doesn't describe this relationship where he says one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. All right, we know that to be true. But look at the second half of this. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's the kind of relationship we're talking about here. That's the true friend, the good friend we find in Jonathan, the covenant friend, the soul friend. A lot of ways we can, we can kind of describe this relationship, but it is a relationship that is built upon selflessness. If you find a selfless friend in your life, you have a rare gift, don't you? Jonathan should have been threatened by David, but he's not. A selfish friend would look at what David might stand to gain, something that is it's actually going to cost Jonathan his rightful position in the lineage. A selfish friend would have said, no, that's, that's mine. A selfish friend would say, no, David, you can't have it. That belongs to me. I like to think that Jonathan was a man of God enough to at least see and know the Lord clearly has his hand upon David, so maybe it's best that I kind of take a secondary role right? But still, do you realize what Jonathan is saying as, as he says to David in that covenant there in 1 Samuel 20? He says, may, may the Lord basically bring judgment upon your enemy. You know who Jonathan's talking about, don't you? Who's the great enemy of David at this point? Jonathan's father. It's King Saul. So the question for us as we think about this relationship, this friendship with Jonathan and David, the covenant friendship. The question is, who is your Jonathan? Who is the covenant friend in your life? The soul friend. The friend who sticks closer than a brother. The selfless friend. And then this question is equally important. To whom are you a Jonathan? Who in your life needs you to be that kind of friend to them? You know, the Surgeon General in this country has been saying now for quite some time that the most prevalent health issue that Americans face today, believe it or not, he says it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's not obesity. According to the Surgeon General, the great health risk that Americans face today is loneliness and isolation. Did you know that the percentage of Americans who identify themselves as being lonely that percentage is right around 40% today. That percentage has doubled in the last generation. And you could probably do a lot of things with that data, but I think it says one thing loud and clear. It says that all of us, every 
race, color, creed, sex, gender, all of everyone looking for a Jonathan. Everyone is looking for a true friend in their life. I read a, a Boston Globe article earlier this year, and the reporter uh, said that, uh, that, that his editor pulled him in. This is a male reporter in his early 40s, and he said his editor called him in. He said, hey, sit down. I, I have a story that I want you to work on. I think you would be perfect for it. And so the reporter says, well, great. What's the story? And he says it's, uh, the, the story is about how middle-aged American men have no friends. And the reporter said, in his mind, he's like, well, now, wait a minute. I have plenty of friends. You know, why, why do you think I would be perfect for this story? You know, so he just kind of listens. And so the, the editor goes on and he says, uh, you know, there's all this evidence out there, medical evidence that shows how men, as they age, they let their close friendships kind of lapse. And that brings about all kinds of health problems for them as they get older. And so the, the editor said, I, you know, given your age and everything, I think you'd be perfect for it. And so the reporter walks back to his desk, and he's writing this in the article, and he said, you know, I was walking back to my desk, and I, I was doing like a little pep talk, you know. I was walking to my desk, and I was thinking, okay, uh, I need to kind of do an assessment of my life and prove to myself that I'm not, in fact, perfect for this assignment because I have lots of friends. And he started listing them off. He started thinking, okay, you know, there's, there's John. You know, he and I went to high school together, and I know him. I, he's my best friend, and I've probably talked to him about a month or two ago, and... Um, yeah, it's been about three years we went and saw that ball game. Um, I get a text message from him every time, you know, football season starts. Uh, but then, you know, there's, there's, there's Dave, you know, he and I are good friends, and we went to college together, and same thing. And, and, and so this guy goes through, and he lists all of these friends, the, the favorites in his contacts, and he realizes that out of those seven or eight guys that he would consider to be really close friends, he said, I've only seen face-to-face, -face, I've seen one of them once in the last 12 months. And so he wrote, he said, by the time I got back to my desk, I realized that I was indeed perfect for this story, not because I was unusual in any way, but because my story is very, very typical. And as I looked into what that means, I realized that in the long term, I was heading down a path that was very, very dangerous. It's been said by someone that uh, a female version of a best friend is someone that you call three or four times a week, someone you play bunko with, someone you go and, and have coffee with, and that a male version of a best friend is someone you haven't talked to in years. And unfortunately, that, that can be kind of true sometimes. It's also been said that women are more likely to sacrifice a, uh, an achievement for the sake of a relationship Women are more likely to sacrifice an achievement for the sake of relationship, whereas men, the opposite is true. We as men are more likely to sacrifice a relationship for the sake of an achievement. That was certainly the, the, the case in the life of Ty Cobb, the Hall of Fame outfielder for the Detroit Tigers. Uh, Ty Cobb had an aggressive, take-no-prisoners uh, style of playing ball, as you can clearly see here, <laughs> as he's sliding into home plate with a takeout slide. Uh, and that same kind of fiery personality, you know, it made him a legend on the ball field. When he retired, he was the all-time leader in, you know, games played and at-bats and hits and runs and batting average, every meaningful category. He owned it. Not only that, he also retired as a millionaire many times over, having wisely invested early on in his career. Get this, he invested in Coca-Cola for one and General Motors for two. He was doing very, very well by the time he retired. 
But it was that same fiery temperament that made him a legend on the ball field that made his relationships, uh, left those a lot to be desired. So, so he was universally reviled on the field during his playing days. I mean, it's hard to see why not, right? He also suffered through two failed marriages. He was intermittently estranged from his children. And as he neared death, he was talking to a biographer and, and the man was sitting with him, he said, Ty Cobb, you've done everything in the game of baseball, and you're a millionaire, and you, you, know, you have to look back with a sense of satisfaction on your life. And he said, you know, not really. He said, if I had it to do all over again, I, I'd try harder at having more friends. None of this is to pick on our men. Women can be just as, uh, can struggle with this just as much as, as men can with uh, isolation and, and loneliness. We, we know that to be true, but, but I do think, I'm speaking generally, so forgive me, but I do think a lot of times, ladies, you're probably a little better at admitting your loneliness than we are. For men, there's, I don't know, kind of an association of loneliness with weakness or lack of masculinity or it just, I don't know, it just seems soft, you know. But if you strip all that away, I think it's fair to say that every single one of us, we're looking for a Jonathan. Every one of us, maybe you that 40% here today, you would say, yeah, I, I would identify I'm pretty lonely and pretty isolated. Maybe you're not. We all are looking for the Jonathan in our lives. In some ways, I think it's easier to develop those kinds of relationships. The younger you are, you just have proximity together as you go through school or as you play ball together or you're in the band or whatever it is that you're doing with an extracurricular activity. As you get older in life, maintaining those relationships can be more of a challenge. And I've identified at least a couple of those challenges. You could probably think of several more. But challenges to maintaining friendship, the first that I can think of over here in the corner would be just the time. Having a Jonathan requires a lot of time, doesn't it? Let's be honest, it does. And time is, is, is our greatest commodity. Uh, imagine there, there are many of you sitting here today as you're thinking, okay, as we go through this, you think, okay, yeah, I get it. Jonathan and David had a great friendship and I'm with you. It's not that I don't want to have a covenant friend like that. I would love to have that in my life. But many of you are probably thinking, like I probably would if I'm sitting there, I, I just don't have the time for that, right? I mean, how, what am I supposed to cut out, Jason? What do you want me to not do? So you try to balance the, the, the pressure of, of work, try to, try to balance, you know, work with with home or, or family, whatever that might mean for you. Maybe you're, maybe you're dating somebody, so you've got to work that in. Maybe, maybe you're married. Maybe you're married with children. Maybe you have grandchildren. So family, that dynamic changes over time, and time becomes so precious there. Clearly, you're here today, so church is an important thing to you. So that's another piece of your time. Maybe you try to work in a little time to take a walk every now and then or exercise, and you get down to the end of the day, you get down to the end of the week, and you think, Okay, tell me, where is the time <laughs> for that kind of covenant friendship? requires a lot of time to have a Jonathan in your life. But that's not the only challenge. You also have this. You have superficiality. You have this, this surface level thing, which kind of goes hand in hand with time. When you don't spend a lot of time with someone, then inevitably when you do get together, your interaction is probably going to be fairly, fairly surface level. And let me just say, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of surface relationship. You know how it is. You say, hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. We're doing good. Inside, you're dying. But nobody knows that because it's all, hey, we're, we're great. And 
And I'm not saying that you need to like have that kind of like deep relationship with everyone that you meet. That's kind of that's kind of a level of neurosis if you're trying to have that deep sort of relationship with everyone you come in contact with. But the Jonathan in your life, that relationship, he or she, it may start off as kind of a superficial surface level relationship, but it doesn't stay there, right? That conversation, that relationship, it's always driving toward a, a deeper place, a place of more authentic relationship. And then finally, maybe the, the greatest threat to friendship of all is selfishness. Unfortunately, that's a, that's a major obstacle to friendship as, as an adult. I would argue that you will never have a healthy relationship with a selfish adult. You just won't. You'll never have a healthy relationship with a selfish adult. You'll always have to manage that relationship. You'll always be the one giving and giving and giving and never getting in return. And let's be fair, there are, are relationships in our lives where we have to do that. Child rearing is one. Children show up and they need a lot. So you do have to give and give and give. But the idea there is that they don't just stay stuck there, right? That eventually they grow up and become also selfless adults who are caring about other people, right? So there may be people in your life that you have to kind of give a little bit to. It's just not wise, I think, to call those relationships friends. Because I don't think that's the best choice of term for that. So those are just a couple of challenges to that. I, I want us to close today by talking about what covenant friendship looks like from the scriptures, and in particular, how covenant friendship, according to God's word, provides a counter to each of those three challenges. The first thing is this, that covenant friendship, we're talking about this kind of relationship between Jonathan and David, or between us and someone else, covenant friendship is being present. I know time is, is so valuable to each one of us, but we make time for the things that are important, don't we? Nobody had to tell you to make time to watch the Alabama game yesterday, right? Or the Auburn game, if that's your particular, you know, point of view. Nobody had to tell you what time kickoff was, right? You didn't have to pencil that in. You, make you built your Saturday around that ball game, probably, right? You do that because it's important to you. There's not a thing in the world wrong with that, right? You do that with your Jonathans as well. You make time for them. Nobody has, to, nobody has to tell you to do that. Now, it may mean that we have to slide some other things off our plate a little bit. I, I get it. We need to make time for what's really important. And you will not cultivate a Jonathan without this practice of intentional presence. Jonathans are grown because of that practice of intentional presence. And I, to take it a little deeper, I think we need to be present in some particular seasons of life, too. Two in particular, I think they're important. I, I'm just going to call it uh, wartime and peacetime, okay? The Jonathan relationship is made up of wartime presence and peacetime presence. Here's, here's kind of what I mean by that. Um, when I assess my own friendships, I've had somebody tell me this, okay? I, I kind of assess my own friendships, and when, it, when it's a, a wartime situation, when my friends are in crisis buddy, I am all in, you know? I call every day. I mean, I'll make plans to come over and sit down with somebody. I, I will do whatever I have to do to kind of be there for that friend of mine in the, in the wartime, in the crunch time when the chips are down. Like, I want to be there for them. I had a friend a few years ago who went through a really contentious divorce, really nasty. 
And I talked to him on the phone every single day. I was over at his house. Now he's happily remarried. And I honestly can't remember the last time we talked. So the, the, the template for that wartime thing, it comes from, of all places in the Bible, the book of Job. Do you believe that? Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, if you're looking for some baby names, those might be, you know, not taken or... Maybe dog names, I don't know. But Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's friends, okay? Listen to this. They heard all about his troubles, and they set out from their homes, and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. So Job needed it, you need it, I need it. We all need wartime friends. We need crisis friends. But you know what? The peacetime, Jonathan, is just as important. We need Jonathan in the peacetime as well as the wartime. So with that Jonathan in your life, I'm telling you, it, it's biblical. Go grab a cup of coffee with your Jonathan. Plan a beach trip. Go run a race together or play cards this weekend or go to a ball game or go fishing or do whatever it is. Just carve out some time to intentionally be present with one another. Might be some potential Jonathans in your life. What might make the difference is just a little bit of intentional presence. Might turn an ordinary friendship into a covenant friendship. Number two, covenant friendship is not just being present. It's not just about sharing the same air with someone, but it's about actually going deep in that time that you share with one another. Dr. Donna Friedis uh, has written a lot about the downside of our social media culture, and she says the worst thing about social media is that it mass produces superficiality. She says, especially with our young people, there's this pressure and this burden to always have something positive, to always post something positive that is associated with their social media account. She has interviewed thousands of people around the country and, and the overwhelming numbers. It's like 75% of young people say that they live with this burden of always trying to be sort of positive. So what they do is they, you sort of create fake happiness and post it to the world with the right sort of picture and the right sort of filter and all of this kind of stuff. And, and covenant friendship. It's such a contrast to that culture that tells you you need to mass produce this fake, superficial happiness. Covenant friendship is authentic. And it's free from the burden of fake happiness. Here's one of the best descriptions of, like, if you, you have a true friend if they live into this verse here from Proverbs, okay? Wounds from a friend, according to God's word, wounds, wounds from a friend can be trusted. What does that mean? <laughs> Let's unpack it real quickly, okay? Wounds from a friend that can be trusted. This is not stab you in the back wounds from a friend, right? This is not the friend who just feels the need to be petty and bring you down a notch or two because you're too happy. <laughs> uh, this isn't, you know, something that, that, that if someone is just malicious and they're trying to just tear you apart. No, no, that's not what God's word's talking about. This is the friend, listen to this, this is the friend that you've invited into the deep spaces of your life, whom you trust enough to be able to wound you in a good way. The person who can say the thing that you need to hear, that you don't want to hear, but you need to hear. And when they speak those words, mm, boy, it hurts a little bit, but you walk away thinking, that was really difficult for them to say, and I needed to hear that. And those wounds will heal pretty quickly because wounds from a friend 
can be trusted. That's covenant friendship. And in a world of, of fake plastic happiness and friends, the Bible says, no, no. Jonathan, covenant friendship is found here. Finally, if we're going to talk about friendship, we need to say this, that covenant friendship is following that selfless example of Jesus. Jonathan's friendship with David is a great example for us of covenant friendship, but we need to close by acknowledging that, that the best friend in the pages of the scriptures is Jesus, that he is our sole friend, right? That he is the one who sticks closer than any other. And I want us to close by hearing these words spoken by Jesus with his friends the night before he died. He says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command. And I no longer call you servants, because servant, a servant does not know his master's business, but instead I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. We can have no greater friend than Jesus. Jonathan and David share in what the scriptures refer to as that covenant friendship. And the question that really matters right now is, are you in a covenant friendship, a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ? James Taylor said, all you have to do is call and I'll be there. You have a friend. And that song, I think, resonates with so many and has for quite some time because, because deep down, we're all looking for a covenant friend. We're about to sing these words about the kind of friend we have in Jesus. And I just want you to know, in Christ, you have one who has laid down his life for you. We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And as we do, you'll see the shepherds of this church positioned throughout the room. If you have a prayer need, something you want to share with them, feel free to seek one of them out. Maybe today for the first time ever, though, you need to walk down an aisle and stand before a group of men and women, a group of brothers and sisters, and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to have that friendship. I want to call him more than friend. I want to call him Lord and Savior. And you'll go into that water and have your sins washed away and come up something new and beautiful and redeemed. Maybe that needs to happen today. Only you would know. But if so, I hope that you won't let this moment pass without doing something about that. Let's stand and sing our song together.